0: Well, question for you, church Have you ever thought, have you ever had the thought, what if this is all not true? Like what if everything we believe in here just isn't true? What if Jesus didn't actually exist? Or what if he was just a human being and not God? What if there's no such thing as sin or judgment or the resurrection of Jesus? What if there is no kingdom of God? Believe it or not, I think those are healthy questions that we need to ask as we kind of walk through our faith, and every Christian should, to a certain degree, ask those questions. We can push on the truth, because the truth is rock solid, so we should be asking those questions. But my question is not whether or not the claims of our faith are true or not, but rather, if they're not true, how would that affect us? What would we do? Well, for me, it'd be easy. I'd be looking for another job real fast. If the claims of our faith are not true, we all get to sleep in on Sundays. We can throw our Bibles away because these things are worthless. We don't have to be worrying about how we live our lives in front of God, the eternal judge. We don't have to worry about sin anymore. Now, let me ask it the opposite way. If these things are true what would you do? How would that dramatically change your life if you believed with every fiber of your being that these things were true? And better yet, since the central claims of our faith are are true, what should we be doing? These days, church, I'm getting concerned with the attitude that is creeping into the church that says something like this, oh man, things are so bad out there. I mean, look at the world. It's going to hell in a handbasket. Just open up any news site, and you just see it. It's just so dark. We're losing. What are we going to do? I guess the only thing we have to do is hold on and wait till Jesus comes back. And that is not what we're called to do. Can we not? Can we not do that? That's not what the church is called to do. Church, of course, I'm going to tell you that the central claims of our faith are true, and that should and has to fuel the way we work and strive for the kingdom of God and all his purposes every single day up until the moment that he returns. And perhaps first and foremost of all the truths in all of our faith, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is perhaps the most supreme truth. And so how should the fact that the resurrection actually happened inform and empower our Faith. I hope and I pray that we will see that today. Head over to Matthew if you're not there already. In Matthew 27, I don't know about you guys, but I'm on the last page of Matthew here. Like, it's been two years. This is like my 83rd sermon in Matthew. I love it. Last week we saw the cross, the horrific nature of what Jesus went through as a sacrifice for sin, his humiliation, his separation. Yet, That's the paradox of our faith, right? Before we can be exalted, we need to be humbled. Before we can be reconciled, we need to be separated. The way Jesus died then is the way that we should live. We live out the paradox of our faith. This week, we see the exaltation after the humiliation. We see the reconciliation after the separation. We see the resurrected King of Kings, Jesus the Messiah. And when we last left our narrative, Jesus had died and he was buried in a rich man's tomb, all of which was done probably with much haste as it was drawing near to the end of the Sabbath. And so let's tune back into our narrative. Look at 27, starting in verse 62. On the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and they made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So the next day, the day after the preparation day, and I don't know why Matthew said it like that, but it's the Sabbath. The preparation day was Friday, and you did all the stuff on Friday that you couldn't do on the next day, the Sabbath, which is Saturday. So you went to Acme, you cleaned the house, you know, you made sure you got all the chores done, cooking, cleaning, so that the Sabbath is completely devoted to worship and rest. That's it. So the Sabbath happens, and they can't do much on the Sabbath. The Sabbath, except if you're a Pharisee or a chief priest, you go to Pilate again, which is a little sketch. You go to Pilate, and you said, Pilate, sir, you look really good today, by the way, Pilate, sir. um, Listen, remember how when that deceiver, poser, Jesus guy, when he was running around, he used to say that he would die, and then he would be risen after... Three days. You remember that? Like, we all know that's impossible, Pilate. I mean, that's ludicrous. But what we are worried about is his disciples may be breaking into the tomb, stealing the body, hiding the body, and then saying, our Messiah has resurrected. Isn't it great? Just as he said. That's what we're worried about. So it'd be really good if you could give us like a, a small squad of maybe green berets or something, and uh, just a way to seal the tomb up so that doesn't happen. What do you think? Pilate, I mean, it's totally uh, just inferring into the text, but I know Pilate's rolling his eyes again, just like, you guys again? Like, shouldn't you be Sabbathing or something? Like, why why are you here? He's already, he's dead, he's in the tomb. Pilate basically says no. He says, look, you got your own guards. You got your own police. You got the temple police. I'm not in this. You go, take your guard, make it a, do what you want with the tomb. Just get out of here, leave me alone. So they did that. They go off to the tomb where where Jesus was buried. Joseph had already rolled the stone in front of the door, so they go and they seal the stone probably with a wax seal and maybe a cord or a rope around it so that it would be evident if anybody messed with it, sort of like a glorified tamper evident packaging or something like that. And they placed their temple guard in front of the tomb to make sure no funny business would happen. They were afraid of Jesus while he was alive. They're still afraid of Jesus after he's dead. I mean, can't they just leave it alone? I mean, you got what you wanted. You crucified Jesus. He's in the tomb. And you guys are still conniving and scheming for ways that they can make sure that he stays dead or that it looks like he stays dead. I'll say this up front. The enemies of our faith never give up. The enemies of our faith... Never give up. Christianity has always had enemies, and Jesus has literally just died, and his enemies are still working to undermine and attack the faith. This goes the same for us, church. Jesus told us straight up in John fifteen eighteen: if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Jesus says, guess what? If they hated me. They're going to hate you. It's coming. They're not going to give up. The enemies of our faith today never give up. Public schools are filled with an unbiblical worldview of a godless evolution of the earth, twisted views of sexuality and gender, and more. Our workplaces are increasingly hostile towards the gospel. How many of us have had to sit through um, enduring corporate diversity and inclusion training? It's completely sinful. Families can't have honest and engaging discussions about Issues of the day over Thanksgiving dinner because politics makes everything blow up, right? Politics itself is consumed with the culture of death and abortion. We just saw that in a big way in the big blowback in the midterms. They spoke loud and clear. We want the right to kill our children. The Respect of Marriage Act just passed or the Disrespect of Marriage Act with support from both sides of the aisle, by the way, Our hope is not in any political party. It can't be. I mean, need I go on? The enemies of our faith never give up. And of course, our biggest enemy, Satan himself, has pulled the wool over so many, deceiving them. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that the God of this world, that Satan has blinded the minds. Did you catch that? Has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Church, Satan will continue to deceive and continue to blind the minds of unbelievers. He will never give up. And neither will the enemies of the church. And Satan will not give up right until the moment that he is cast forever into the lake of fire. He still is deceived that he has a chance of winning. And so what are we to do? Again, just bury our heads in the sand and say, well, Jesus is coming back any day. We can't. The church is on the offensive. Jesus told us that the church is offensive. He said the gates of hell will not stand against it. That is the church moving. The gates are defensive, right? The church is the one that's moving through those gates, and so the church must be on the offensive. Now is not the time to bury our heads in the sand. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. It could be another 10,000 years we have work to do. Now is the time to advance and we remember the end is already written. Right? Newsflash. The church wins. Jesus wins. Jesus is now King of kings and Lord of lords right now. No matter how dark it gets, church, remain encouraged. The church has always had enemies. That's what this passage is telling us. And we meet those enemies by advancing the work of the church. Just like the disciples were doing in the midst of this. What we're called to do, we're called to go and tell, to do the work of the church without fear. Why? Because Jesus is actually alive. And that's where our narrative goes next. Look at, look at uh, chapter 28. We're going into a new chapter. woo Last chapter. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake... For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you see Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come see the place where he lay. And so the day after the Sabbath, Right, This is super important, because the Sabbath is Saturday, so now this is Sunday, the first day of the week. The Marys, they head to the tomb. Why? Probably because they wanted to finish anointing Jesus. If you recall, crucified on a Friday, the sun was going down, they most likely had to hurry up the burial process before the Sabbath, because you couldn't certainly be anywhere near a dead body on the Sabbath. So they quickly maybe did some anointing to Jesus' body, which was a huge deal in the Jewish tradition had to be buried properly, and they sealed Jesus in the tomb with the intention, perhaps, of coming back the day after the Sabbath and to continue the process. Mark, in his version, tells us this plainly in Mark chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Now, we don't really have these kind of tombs anymore, so I grabbed a few pictures for when we were in Israel. This is the garden tomb that is in Israel. It's probably hard to see in the back, but that little rectangle there, that is a a tomb cut into the side of the rock, just like they would imagine would be Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. And you can see it just about fits one person. As they walk through that narrow way. And I think I have a couple more. That's a a view of the door from the side. And if you just catch it on the bottom, there's this little track. And the little track is where they would have the big stone. And the big stone would roll back and forth. And the idea really was that it was probably a family tomb. And so as more family members died, they would go roll the stone back Put the fa- other family member in the tomb with the rest of his deceased family members, right? Seal up the tomb, and they would keep going like that, right? I think I have one more inside the tomb you would see. Of course, they've gated it off there, so nobody just goes trouncing in there. Um, there is a place that looks like a concrete bed, which essentially is just where you would rest the body that is that um, has been anointed and all of that with spices, This is the garden tomb. This is one of two places in Israel that they think uh, Jesus may have been buried. The other one is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is a much different scene. This is a quiet, peaceful, tranquil place. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre is absolutely not a quiet, peaceful, tranquil place. That's the Roman Catholic side of the fence, and so it's complete and utter chaos. There's just people everywhere. People bringing their trinkets that they have uh, bought in Israel from souvenirs, and they would literally get as close to any holy relic as they can, and they would rub their trinkets on the relic in hopes that any of the Jesus power would, would come and, yeah, I'm kidding. Yeah, I wish I was kidding." There's a line to do that. People would sit there and, and, and bow down to anything that they even remotely thought was possible. There's a line for the, for the, I can't remember what the word is, but where they actually think was part of the tomb of Jesus, it just goes around, it goes around and around, people wait on hours to just catch a view of this, It's craziness. We don't know uh, which one it was, guys are split on it, I think a lot of them prefer the Church of the Holy Sepulchre location, but the garden tomb in and of itself is a very good representation of what a tomb would look like from that time period. So the Marys get to the tomb, they see something crazy, another earthquake. Remember, Matthew told us there was an earthquake when Jesus died. Now there's another earthquake. We find out why. Matthew tells us, because an angel of the Lord came down, rolled away the massive stone that covered the entrance of the tomb, and sat on it. I love that. I don't know why. I always think that is the funniest part of this story. He just comes down, rolls down the giant rock, and just sits on it, just waiting for, you know, the Marys to show up, sitting on the rock. His appearance, like most angelic encounters, is absolutely terrifying. His appearance, Matthew tells us, is like lightning. His clothing as blinding as fresh snow. The guards faint in fear. You know who doesn't faint in fear? The Marys. The Marys are tough. The guards are like, yeah, angel, they're out. The Marys are like, no, we're, we're moving on. I'm sure they're scared. The angel says to them, do not fear. You are looking for Jesus. He was crucified. He's not here. He's risen, just as he said he would. I love that he throws that in there. He's risen, just like he told you. Why are you afraid? Why are you surprised? Let's be clear here. This isn't the angel descending and rolling rolling the stone away so that Jesus can come out. He's already gone. Carson puts it this way in his commentary. There's no indication that the earthquake had anything to do with releasing Jesus. The stone was rolled back. The seat was broken. The seal was broken, rather. And the soldiers made helpless, not to let the risen Messiah escape, but to let the first witnesses in. Isn't that amazing? Just so clever of Carson to, and I think that's exactly right. Jesus doesn't need to be let out, like, you know. Hello, I'm risen from this. Somebody get the stone. No, he's out. He's gone. We need to see what's going on in there. So this is for us, church. The stone is rolled away for us, for the Marys. Look at verse 7. And quickly, uh, he says, he's not here, of course. He's risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. So he invites them in again to see the empty tomb. In verse 7, he gives them instructions, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead, and behold, he's going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. The angel says, now, okay, we've got that settled, you don't see Jesus, he's gone, he's risen, just like he said he would, now go, quickly, go. Tell his disciples that he's resurrected just as he said, and he will meet you in Galilee also, just like he said. In 26, 32, if you glance back, Jesus told them clearly that after he was raised up, he would meet them in Galilee. And take note of how they go. Did you catch that? With fear and great joy. So hopeful, so joyful, yet so completely terrified at the same time. What an accurate description of what they must have felt like. Things get even crazier on the way to tell the disciples they meet Jesus, the risen Christ himself. Look at verse (coughs) 9. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up to him and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. He's this again. Oh, this is one of my favorite. This gets me too. They see Jesus. They're trying to go tell the disciples that this has happened, and they see Jesus Himself on the way. And what does He say to them? Greetings. Like, what's up? How are you? What's going on? We greetings. What do you mean greetings? It, it's actually in the Greek. It's more like rejoice. There's there's more to it than just a, a generic kind of greeting. Jesus says to them rejoice. I'm alive. I've risen. And wouldn't you know it, Jesus tells him the same thing the angel did. Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to head to Galilee, and there you will see me. Twice, two encounters, one with the angel, one with Jesus. They both say the same thing. Don't be afraid. Just go. So I'll say it this way. Because Jesus is alive, we should not be afraid to go and tell. Because Jesus is alive, we should not be afraid to go and tell. What I'm saying all hinges on the historical fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Meaning, say it the other way, if Jesus were still dead, we should be very afraid to go and tell because it's all meaningless. Jesus is alive, though, and therefore we should not be afraid to go and tell. Everything changes, church, with the resurrection. Let's be clear. Jesus didn't raise himself from the dead. God the Father raised God the Son through the power of God the Holy Spirit to prove that Jesus' sacrifice was accepted. You can't really see it in the English, but in the Greek, all those verbs for raised are all passive verbs. And, and theologian nerdy guys call that the divine passive Because who raised Jesus from the dead? Jesus didn't raise himself, it was passive. God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Why? To prove that a sacrifice was accepted. It is finished. The work is done. And don't blow by the fact that one of the first things that changes again is the day of worship. The old covenant is gone. No longer are we bound by the Sabbath. That's why we're all here on a Sunday. The church for centuries, as soon as it has existed... Changed the day of their worship under the new covenant to Sunday, and we gather just like every other church proclaiming the gospel. We gather on a Sunday, the first day of the week, in memory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the other major thing has changed is that we now have rock solid hope. I mean, think of the disciples, think of this, this roller coaster of emotions, right? They went from being completely despondent, fearful in despair, confused, not knowing what was going on, mourning the death of their friend, and now he's alive. Like, talk about something that's going to change the whole picture. Like, we've, we've all lost loved ones, right? Imagine that just didn't happen. They were alive again. Jesus is alive. You imagine the disciples going from the depths of their despair and doubt and confusion of just, like, this is all over. Like, we're, we're with this guy for three years. We thought he was the Messiah, and now he's dead but now he's alive. This changes everything, church. Again, to say this negatively, if Christ has not been raised, we have no hope. Paul famously talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 12. Because there were some in the church that were saying there is no such thing as a resurrection to begin with. And he counters that and says, now if... Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And here's what happens. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Then your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God himself. Because we testified about God that he did raise Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Watch this. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul says, if Christ hasn't been raised, it's all over. Pack it up. It doesn't mean a thing. And if, if, if we're doing this to be nice, moral people, it, just in this hope, just in this life, He says, then we're the most pitiful people on the planet. He says, but that's not the way it is. Christ has been raised. And so because Jesus is alive, we should not be afraid to go and tell and do the work of the church. Since Christ has been raised, church, what are we so afraid of? Why do we fear our opponents Why do we not open our mouths and push back the lies of our culture? Why do we not take captive every thought and make them obedient to Christ? Why do we not demolish arguments and strongholds and every lofty opinion that is set up against the knowledge of Christ? This is not suggesting that people should, we're we're saying to people, just give Jesus a chance or invite him into your hearts. No, I'm saying we push back the arguments and we say, no, because Jesus is alive, guess what? His kingdom is for real. And we have real hope, and that's the only hope in Christ. This is me saying that our king has risen from the dead victoriously, just as he said, and that is the reason why we should get out there and push back darkness while we're holding out the word of light. If anyone should be scared, it should be our enemies. And that is where we land the plane, the fear that the enemies have of Jesus. Look at verse 11. Muckety muck, a Pharisee, a scribe, an elder. It's probably time to think of a career change at this point, or at least better, maybe a heart change. The temple guards come running up to them, further proving that they're not Roman guards, because if they were Roman guards, they wouldn't care. They came running up to the chief priests and the elders to give the report of what happened. And they're like, Yeah, so um, he's, uh, he's gone. All we remember is this earthquake and some sort of light, and we passed out, and we woke up, and he was gone. That's all. That's all we remember. So what do they do? They give him a pile of money. That's what they do. They bribe him. They say, here, say to this, great, fine, cool. Uh, We can't have this getting out. So here's a pile of cash. Your new story is that you both fell asleep, and when you woke up, he was gone. Therefore, it must have been his disciples that stole the body away. Here you go. Here you go. And the story, they say, has been continued to this day. And they also say, guess what? If this gets to the Romans, don't panic. We got your back there too. I don't know if I would trust them on that very much. We don't know how that turned out. So they did as they were told. And through the first century, even up to the second century, we know Justin Martyr had written about it, that this was still what they were saying. Up through the second century, that the disciples came and stole the body while they were asleep. Asleep. Through an earthquake, right? Through the landing of the the crazy angel guy who then sits on the rock, then two disciples or however many disciples come, chip away at the wax seal on the tomb, right? Break all the cords or whatever other ropes they were doing, right? Roll the stone away, steal the body out from under there, and run off into the night. And they were asleep when all that happened. That is absolutely ridiculous. One church father put it this way. The Jewish leaders purchased treachery, but they did not steal the truth. Christ rose from the dead. They just lost money. That's all they did. Meaning the truth is still the truth. They tried to bribe somebody, but that doesn't change the fact that Jesus actually rose from the dead. The truth is still the truth. And so I'll say it this way. The truth will always be suppressed by some. The truth will always be suppressed by some. You would think, maybe, just maybe, that, that instead of immediately trying to find a way to cover this up, that, that one of the Pharisees, scribes, whomever, hopefully more than one did, but you would think that they would stop and think, maybe this is the actual Messiah. Maybe, maybe he was the Son of God. Maybe what he said was actually true. If he is resurrected, maybe I need to figure out if this is true or not. But they're not interested in the truth. They're interested in covering this up. I mean, you'd think that they would try to get after the truth after this, right? But they weren't. Not at all. Essentially, they're saying, this can't be true. Why can't it be true? Because we don't want it to be true. And we don't want it. We don't need this truth. If this is actually true, it's going to mess up everything. <clears throat> and that hasn't changed <clears throat> one bit. Our culture is increasingly set up to resist actual objective truth and substitute their own truth. The Apostle Paul famously writes in Romans chapter 1 about what happens there. In Romans chapter 1, in verse 18 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed against heaven or from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, watch this, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Apostle Paul says God exists, that much is plain. One author recently said that it's not merely that people don't want to know God, they know God, they just suppress the truth of knowing God. In other words, they don't want to know God. They know he's there. I just, I don't want to know him. He says this, this author, Paul says that the evidence for God's existence is everywhere and in everything. Even those who would never open their eyes have evidence of God's existence because they themselves are that evidence. Not only is the evidence abundant, but because it's revealed to us by God, it is clear and clearly seen as well as understood, but it is super the truth is there people are suppressing it Mel and I were watching uh, a documentary um, on transgenderism and that whole movement going on and the interviewer kept asking various experts in various fields for the truth of what gender actually is and there was one nobody actually liked that question of course but there was one who responded With something like that word you're using, truth, that's offensive. It's just, he just couldn't, he goes, what do you mean truth is offensive? He's like, what what does that even mean? He goes, I'm sorry, I mean truth, like reality. Like, what is reality? That's the definition of truth, right? Our culture can't even understand that now. They're suppressing the knowledge of truth 2022, America is not on a quest for truth, but like the false prophet Oprah says, live your truth, right? Whatever your truth is, then it's true for you, so you live it. No, that's not truth. Truth exists outside of us. It is real. It is objective. It is daylight outside. That is true. You go outside and you see that, right? One plus one equals two all the time. The truth, the very definition of truth is what corresponds to reality. Either Jesus rose from the dead or he did not. That's what that's saying. And church, we know that it's true. The truth is that Jesus actually rose from the dead and the Jewish leaders are suppressing the truth with a bribe. They're trying to throw money at the problem, but he is alive and that changes everything. And so church, we should have hope. The hope that the transforming power of the gospel can go out and that nothing can stop it. And so here's the big idea this morning. Because Jesus is alive, the gospel cannot be stopped. Because Jesus is alive, the gospel cannot be stopped. If Jesus were not resurrected, there is no gospel. So it, it stopped. There's nothing for me to preach, there's no songs to sing, there's no gospel to proclaim, but he is alive, and therefore the gospel cannot be stopped. But church, our enemies are the ones who oppose Jesus with their ideas, with their own truths, and they set themselves up against the reality, the knowledge of God. Look at the Pharisees, the chief priests, look at the extent that they go to, in order to keep the gospel message from being true. They work in the beginning to say, well, we have to make sure that it doesn't seem like he resurrected. Look, we have the resurrection account that's sandwiched in between both of these attempts of them to stop the gospel. And Jesus resurrects. It can't be stopped. Look at the extent that they went to in order to keep the gospel message from being true, to keep the kingdom of God from advancing. They didn't give up then, and they're not giving up now. So we expect resistance to the truth. And we know our culture is not really interested in truth itself. They're interested in their own version of truth. The Pharisees and the chief priests try hard to cover up the resurrection with a bribe. A bribe? They try to give them money to cover up the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. How much money was that? Like, what's the number? I'm dying to know. How much money would you, would you possibly think could actually cover up the fact of the resurrection of the Son of God? It didn't work very well because we're sitting here today. We got a Bible that says Jesus resurrected from the dead. We got a church all over the world. That, that didn't work. Guess the bribe? Whatever money they spent didn't work. They tried to suppress the truth and still our opponents will continue to suppress the truth What is plain to them, truth is plain to them, and they try to suppress it, but they can't change the nature of actual objective facts. The fact is that Jesus lived, that he was crucified, and that he was resurrected. And therefore, we should not be afraid to go stand for the truth of the gospel in God's word. We should realize, church, because Jesus is alive, the gospel cannot be stopped. And a few verses before what we said in Romans 1, in Romans 1, verse 16, is one of the most powerful explanations of that. Paul says this, look at this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. Church, if Jesus were still dead, we have much to be ashamed of but he's not. The apostle Paul says that I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because he knows the resurrected Christ. He knows that Christ actually did rise from the grave. Christ has been raised, and therefore we have nothing to be ashamed about, for it is the very power of God for salvation to anyone who comes to him. No resurrection, no salvation. But we know that he has been raised from the dead, and that changes everything. And because Jesus is alive, church, the gospel cannot be stopped. Does that impact the way we look at the world? Does that impact the way that when we see these news stories coming in and all of these things going, yes, they're terrible, yes, they're tragic, and yes, we mourn the effects of sin and evil and sickness in our, in our culture. But make no mistake, church, we're not going to lose Our enemies are the ones who should be ashamed. Our enemies are the ones who should be afraid. Jesus is alive. And because of that, the gospel can't be stopped. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the truth of the resurrection. We thank you for the the objective facts that there, there is no body that was stolen. There was a body that walked out of that tomb because he was alive. And because of that, Lord, we have hope. We have the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that was accepted by you, and we know that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Father, as we continue to try to live out our lives as faithful disciples in this dark culture, would you instead of causing us to turn inward and be afraid of what we read out there or see out there, would you cause us to be encouraged? Would you cause us to be full of hope that Jesus is alive and the gospel cannot be stopped. We pray it in his precious name. Amen.